Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Welcome to the fifth anniversary of Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway since 2016. The world has changed a lot, but we are still here talking about China every month. It's kind of amazing, isn't it, Graham, that we've lasted this long? <laughs> Look, I never expected it. I certainly, when I did a jerry-built thing in my lounge room back in Coburg,、um, I certainly never expected、uh, we'd be here. Uh, or that we win awards, or that、um, you know we, people would actually listen to us. Yes, well, an award. An, an award.、Yes. Okay, but it's a big one. An award. <laughs> I mean, thank you to all our listeners. It's actually been an amazing experience. Actually, Graham, I can't even believe that we made it to five years because. Even after the second episode, it looked like we were going to die a very quick death, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it did. I mean, basically, I was told,、um, you know, it's either the podcast or your job.、Uh, and despite the fact that I had tenure,、uh, I made the decision to、uh, to to keep the podcast and leave the job.、Um, so we could have had a, a podcast series that lasted for all of two episodes, which would have,、uh, you know, not quite got us to five years. That's quite some commitment to a podcast, given that we'd only done one episode together. <laughs> well, certainly my wife wasn't too impressed, I must say, because <laughs>、uh, that meant you know I had to we had to leave Melbourne with、uh, one and later two small children.、Um, so yeah, it really has caused a lot of upheaval, but it's totally been worth it. It really has. I mean, let's hope the next five years are not. Not as dramatic as the first part. Yes, may, may you live in less interesting times. And I mean, for your part, you know, you had only just come to Australia. You've been through bushfires. You've been through, I think, now your fifth COVID lockdown.、Um, you know, let's hope it's less eventful for you too. Here's to the next five years. Indeed.、Eh? I guess it was a little bit of a test, wasn't it? This fifth anniversary edition, when we we asked listeners to give in questions, and we just didn't know. How many there were and how nerdy they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and certainly some of the listeners really went overboard. There were not just one question sent in; some of them sent in many, many questions. All of them were so good,、um, and we narrowed it down to four, which was a, a very tricky thing to do.、Um, but I think they're sort of four of the most meaty questions that、uh, came our way. So thank you to everybody who sent in their questions. Let's start, Graham. You started with a question from Evan Hadkins,、uh, who simply asked, "Do most people support the government or tolerate it?" Now, I don't even know how you answered this question. Tell me about who you found to answer it.、Um, so, I went to the world's leading expert on what the Chinese people think of the Chinese government, and that's Professor Tony Sage at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also just, as in the past few days, just published a new book called "From Rebel to Ruler: A Hundred Years of the Chinese Communist Party." So I simply put Evan's question to him: Do most people support the government or tolerate it? That's a very、uh, complex question. Not surprisingly,、um, what we seem to see from most、uh, surveys that are available is that. The overwhelming majority of the people seem to be somewhat satisfied、uh, with the performance of the government, but I think if you parse it, it's a little bit more complex.、Um, because what is it that they're satisfied with? Well, they seem to be satisfied with the range of things、uh, in the policy realm that are to do with、uh, grappling now with corruption, 
with even providing better public services. And even though surveys that we did up until 2016 showed that over 90% of respondents were satisfied with the performance uh, of the Chinese government, if you parse that out, there was only 30%, just over 30%, who were actually highly satisfied. And the rest were kind of, yeah, it, it's kind of okay, uh, and we support it. Um, but of course, uh, that does lead you into a question about performance legitimacy. Uh, is that support there as long as uh, the Chinese government is providing the economic goods, the social policy goods, and so forth? Now, before we dig down into the weeds of your surveys, which you conducted over a 13-year period from 2003 to 2016, I guess the question lingering probably in many listeners' minds is, how can you do a survey like this in an autocracy? I mean, what's to be gained as a respondent from expressing a negative opinion in uh, public? Because obviously, like everyone doing research in China, or as we used to do research in China, um, you have a local partner, and that's who's doing the surveying. Is that something we should allow for? No, this is an important question. And um, I think certainly it is a reflection when people ask questions about the central government. What is it for me to say, no, I'm not satisfied, I think it's terrible, and also, more importantly, it's so far away from ordinary people's lives. Can we trust it? I think we can trust it uh, for two reasons. The first being that when you ask specific questions about performance of local government and local government officials, you get very different responses. So, for example, uh, in cities in China, only 7% of respondents said that they were highly satisfied with the performance of their local government. And they showed um, a lack of appreciation for work in a number of areas uh, that local government was engaged in. And I, I think one of the interesting take-homes from your survey is over that time period, although people were still relatively dissatisfied with local governments, um, their satisfaction actually improved over time. I mean, what changes do you think accounted for that increase in satisfaction? Yes, I think there's um, a couple of things probably which account for it. I think first is that if you look at the um, increase in satisfaction, the satisfaction increased most amongst the poorer segments uh, of those responding, and also not in the coastal areas, but in the inland and more peripheral areas of China. That, to me, points to the fact that the investment by the Chinese government in improving uh, a meager, but still an improving social welfare infrastructure, and also putting more investment into harder infrastructure in those areas, was paying off. Uh, so it goes beyond just sort of economic satisfaction to show that under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, and even into the Xi Jinping era, that investment into um, strengthening uh, the social infrastructure has paid uh, dividends in terms of increasing satisfaction. I think the second thing that probably contributes to it, if we look, um, the quality uh, of many of the local officials has improved without doubt over the 13-year period that we were conducting those surveys. Um, and that is shown by a different set of questions where we ask things like, um, going back to 2003, uh, we asked, do you think the local government official looks after the ordinary people? Well, under a quarter said yes. 
But by the time we did that in 2016, almost half said they thought that was the case. And one other thing, this is very much in the weeds, I noticed that um, there was a really sharp rise in people saying that their officials looked after the local area. And this is something that they rated them very poorly on in 2003. I mean, what's happening there? Are these local officials starting to speak in local dialect and, and almost behave like politicians who say, yeah, I'll protect your interests against Beijing or against the province? I mean, is, is, is this sort of thing going on? I'm not sure they're going out and cuddling babies and sort of, you know, shaking people's <laughs> hands and so on and so forth, as we would see. But I do think that um, probably what is more likely is that with the increasing pressure from the centre and more funds being available to provide some of the social services and, of course, the big infrastructure spending which has taken place, that many local citizens may have seen in their perception a quality of life uh, improving at those times. And of course, they may ascribe that then to better performance by the local government officials. Because we know one of the continual uh, issues related to China is, uh, you know, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. So yeah, the emperor is saying great things. We want you to have more of this. We want you to have more of that. We want you to have a pension. We want you to have a better basic medical insurance. We want you to have better roads. And of course, if you don't get them, you must think, well, that's because the local official isn't performing her or his job properly, or they're siphoning off the funds into uh, maybe their own pockets. And of course, one thing which always turned up as the government service that citizens were least satisfied with was the question of combating corruption. And that, along with uh, this kind of flawed me with attracting investment. Because um, when I was out there in the in the townships, the only thing local officials were doing was trying to attract investment, and yet people rated them very poorly for for doing this. I mean, you know, how do you explain something like that? When I mean, literally, this is the only thing governments right. were doing when I was out there. And no, yet you're they right. Got very I poor mean, marks. You're right. I mean, that's. Uh... That is what they expect uh, officials to be doing. But, you know, remember, you know, the survey spreads across, you know, major cities to smaller towns and into villages. And so I think it depends very much, uh, you know, where you're situated uh, in terms of that. And, you know, and we see that question around attracting investment, uh, citizens being least satisfied really in some of the smaller towns and in the villages where you, well, you might expect, yeah, it might be the only thing they can do, but where on earth is the investment going to come from? I mean, you know what some of these places are like. Uh, I mean, you know, we would call them God-forsaken, or maybe they're Marx-forsaken in, uh, in China. But, uh, you know, when everybody's competing, there's not a lot of attraction in some of these places to bring investment in. And if you don't have a local government official who can curry favour, uh, with their superiors and suck up close to, to their leaders, you know, their chances really diminish in terms of bringing in uh, attractive investment. Presumably there are still people within China doing surveys. What are they picking up about Xi Jinping's government um, post-2016? I mean, how did people react to Xi Jinping giving himself basically a mandate to govern for life? Well, I'm not sure that ordinary folk, if you want to call them that, that that's really a primary concern for them. I mean, what our surveys really were about were bread and butter issues. You know, is the water 
coming? Is the electricity on? Am I getting my medical insurance? And I think on those questions, what we see from Chinese surveys that we've been able to access subsequently, uh, they're not a lot different from what we found. The people tend to trust. They tend to have a relatively high level of satisfaction with the central government. And that brings us back to one of the points we touched on earlier, this question of performance legitimacy. And does that mean if the economy begins to fade and uh, the government has less largesse to dispense, do citizens become less dissatisfied uh, than the way they appear to be in our surveys and from what I have seen of Chinese-conducted surveys subsequently? So that was Tony Sage at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And how interesting. So he's, I mean, I think it really shows the adaptiveness of the authoritarian government. What he's basically saying is people not only tolerate the government, but they increasingly support it, especially the poorest segments, because they're seeing it working for them, right? Yeah, and it's it's fascinating. And I love it because it's a counter to this uh, narrative that you always get about the Hu Jintao era as kind of a, a lost decade. Because what I was seeing out there is that building roads, um, getting people health insurance was actually working and improving people's satisfaction. So the Hu Jintao era, not a, not a total dead loss. Yeah. So now, Louisa, onto yours. And I'm really looking forward to this. Um, it's about this trend that seems to be taking off in China, whereby people are getting kitted up in what they're calling traditional Chinese dress or, or hanfu. Here's the question from Aaron Chia. The hanfu revival within China has been described as a racial nationalist movement, whereas others have defended it as nothing more than a fashionable trend. Also noteworthy is that the craze is not restricted to the mainland PRC, although it would be interesting to see if it really originated from China. What even is hanfu? Is it a modern trend driven by fantasy, or is there some kind of lineage that the clothing can claim? So who did you find to take that on, Louisa? So I'm really lucky to be working in the same institution as Antonia Fenain, who's an honorary professorial fellow of Chinese history at the University of Melbourne. She's done a lot of research on textiles. She's written a book called Changing Clothes in China. I believe she's writing a book now on the history of the Mao suit. So when I spoke to her, I began by asking her to describe actually what is Hanfu and what does it look like? Well, to an outsider, it would look like costume dress-ups. For adherents of the Hanfu movement, it is an ethnic form of dress. So the Han in this uh, refers to the Han people as opposed to the Han dynasty. But in practice, quite a lot of Hanfu are taken from historical research into clothes worn during the Han dynasty, which is looks for a girl it would look like something like a a wraparound uh, garment topped with very wide sleeves worn over a loose flowing skirt. And um, for men, it's kind of baggy trousers and tunics. It, it, it looks very, I mean, let's be honest, it's super photogenic, isn't it? Well, it does. And there are various sorts of specialists in this area. If you go onto the Hanful sites, you'll see, you know, quite a lot of detailed conversation uh, sometimes about the exact designs of a particular costume from a particular period. And the Han dynasty is not the only source. So the dynasties of China are broadly dividable into those that had Chinese uh, emperors 
and alien emperors. So the Mangal, Mongols and the Manchus would be examples of alien dynasties. And those are the no-no for the harmful movement. I think it makes sense to think about this harmful in terms of the problem that the English have in their lack of national costume. So if you look at the UK, you've got the English with no national costume and you've got the Scots with their kilts and the Welsh with their hats and so on. So these Han ethnic people feel that, unlike the Tibetans or the Uyghurs or the Manchus or any of the other, you know, 55 minority peoples, that they don't have an ethnic costume. What happened to their ethnic identity? This is the core problem for them. And it's what sort of has fueled the the harmful movement in many respects. That is so interesting because I I actually didn't know any of that. I just assumed it meant Han people um, as opposed to Han dynasty. So what you're saying is, for example, Manchu clothing, so the, the kind of clothing worn during the Qing dynasty, that would not be acceptable to a, an adherent of, of, of Hanfu. Well, absolutely. So the basic myth around the Hanfu, and you'll see this if you look up something like um, Baidu, the Chinese wiki, uh, Hanfu is described as a traditional Chinese dress with uh, a lineage of you know 4,000 years, broken only when the Manchus conquered China in the 17th century. The Manchus made Chinese men wear pigtails, cues, and dress in long um, Manchu gowns. And for the Hanful people, for the Hanful adherents, or the Hanful ideologues, because actually I think there are ideologues in this movement and then there are just sort of also-rans, uh, for them, the Manchus destroyed Chinese dress and they are reviving it. Oh, that's so interesting. So... In his question, our listener, Aaron Jia, describes it as a racial nationalist movement. Is that then, in your view, correct? I think it would be true to say that there's a sort of spectrum of positions. It's not one movement. There are lots of groups. At the soft end, it sort of looks like cosplay. So there is, or or there certainly was before COVID, a Melbourne University harmful group. I don't know if you ever saw them standing around getting their photos taken. And according to one of my students, they mostly just sort of get dressed up and then they go out to dinner. But at the hard end, it emphasises ethnic boundaries and subscribes to racial purity. And I have to say that this poses a problem for Beijing, which really has enough on its hands with claims of minority peoples without having to consider Han claims in sort of the the ethnic space. Interestingly, I feel the Chinese state is historically very skilled at co-opting cults. And it is doing this with the Hanfu movement. So now, since about 2018, there's been an official day each year to celebrate it, effectively to celebrate Hanfu, but they don't call it Hanfu, which would be a little bit divisive because of the emphasis on the Han ethnicity. Chinese government wants this, you know, big harmonious family. They don't want a divided family. So they call it the Huafu, <laughs> the Huafu uh, Day. But it is, in, to all intents and purposes, this is um, a harmful day. So the question that 
Aaron asks about is it a sort of modern fantasy thing or is there a real lineage, you are saying that there is a lineage, that historically speaking, the clothing does resemble the clothing from the Hand Dynasty. Okay. Well, of course. They go back to books. They visit museums. If you go down to the National Gallery of Victoria, you can see a Han Dynasty tomb figurine that will be dressed more or less like the costumes worn by typical Hanfu adherent. Historians would talk about this as the invention of a tradition. All folk costume is, and Hanfu is no different. And when you hear them talking about something like, you know, 4,000-year history of Hanfu that sort of was marginalised in the 17th century and now revived in the 21st century, you are hearing a big invented history. I mean, I was first in China in the late 1980s and the early 1990s and there was no Hanfu anywhere. So it does look like a modern tradition. I mean, what do you think the factors are behind that then? Well, to the extent that uh, this involves young people, you'd have to say that they're feeling not very invested in the sort of party state (laughs) that has been created for them. There must be a sense of needing alternative communities to that with which they are presented in their classrooms, in their homes and in their workplaces. In the 1990s, uh, there was a sort of great cultural fever and a rediscovery of the Chinese past. I think uh, a lot of that, in fact, concerned the rediscovery of the Qing dynasty. So it's quite interesting that we're seeing this reaction against the Qing, against the Manchus, in the form of this um, Hanfu movement. So interesting. And I guess my final question, I mean, you have really been researching and studying Chinese clothing. Do you think there is any such thing as Chinese clothing? I think it's worth bearing in mind the saying that when the dynasty changes, so does the clothing. So that's, you know, gai zheng shuo yi fu se. We're talking about elites here, but it's a fact that when a dynasty was established, so were new clothing protocols. So when the Ming dynasty was established in 1368, following nearly a century's rule by the Mongols, it tried to restore pure, pristine, pre-Mongol Chinese um, dress. And when, then when the Qing dynasty was established in 1644, of course these were the Manchus, then they did that thing that the Hanfu people hate and made Chinese people, Chinese men wear cues and wear the long gown. And I used to think of clothing in the Mao years as a sort of, you know, just sort of default socialist modern style. But now I think of it as a Chinese dress regime, the new clothing for the new dynasty, you know, pivoted on the the jufu, the the uniform style. And, I mean... If you were to think of it in this way, has there been a change in the Xi Jinping era? We're clearly not in the Mao era, and the reform era absolutely uh, signalled a break uh, with the Mao period. And in contemporary China, we see 
um, a clothing system that is profoundly embedded in the modern world where China is really trying to make and leave its mark. So there is something about Chinese society, I feel, that is quite cosmopolitan so that this sort of ethnic specification uh, associated with the, the harmful movement, you know, I think it's only going to go so far. I very much doubt. I know that, you know, signed-up adherents, uh, they come in their millions but not in their tens of millions. So I think there's certainly limits to its influence and its likely longevity. Louisa, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I had no idea about any of that, I must say. And as someone who as a child was forced to wear a kilt uh, and engage in Scottish festivities, I'm really tickled by the idea that there's now a festival, uh, a Huafu festival, um, where the state tries to channel this kind of new patriotic dress. I mean, uh, were you aware of any of this? No, I wasn't. So, I mean, thank you to Antonia Finane for this incredible sort of 10 minute long masterclass in the history of Chinese clothing. It's just amazing. I, I, I really had no idea that there are millions of people doing this. Is is um, It's just nuts. Okay, let's move on. Third question, and this was a super nerdy one. It was from Peter Neville Hadley, who deserves a mention because he submitted not questions, but essays and quite a few of them. Uh, I won't read the whole question because it was so long, but the beginning of his question read, why isn't anyone commenting on the infinite elasticity of Chinese statistics, that no statistic coming out of China that cannot be independently verified may be regarded as true or indeed as anything else other than an indication of what it is the party wants us to believe. Now, you took this question. Um, Who did you take it to? Well, look, I, I must confess I'm a stats nerd from way back. So I was delighted to find that someone had written a history of statistics in China. So I went to Arunab Ghosh at Harvard University, who's the author of... Another Harvard person. I know. We're, we're so <laughs> Ivy League. And he, this book came out with Princeton University Press as well. So it's, we're just Ivy League all over. Um, and his book is called um, Making It Count, uh, Statistics and Statecraft in the Early People's Republic of China. And what was your first question? Why do Chinese do statistics differently? This is indeed quite quite a loaded question, and and uh, what's interesting, I think, is to is to perhaps recognize how different the entire system, the entire statistical apparatus in China has been. And here, the contrast with other countries, I think, uh, we can think of the U.S., we can think of Australia, we can think of um, you know even even countries like like India and many in Europe uh, have a, have a sort of different way in which statistical data gets produced. And typically, what you see is not a single agency that becomes responsible for all data. Uh, you, you see a whole range of agencies, many of them governmental, many of them, uh, you know, outside the government at universities, uh, uh, sort of private agencies. What you see in, in China, really, and this, this is true since 1949 itself, is that there was one centralized statistical agency. No one else was allowed to collect data. No one was, else was allowed to disseminate data. To the extent that agencies, you know, a, a particular, say, unit, a particular industrial unit, a, a particular village was collecting data, it was within this particular system. So this is one way in which I think you can see that there is an inbuilt kind of structural logic 
to the fact that data is not so easily disseminated. So if you go back and look at the 50s, the 60s and 70s, this was felt ex- sort of at an extreme level by outside observers who were desperate for the release of data. And this was done in a very irregular fashion by the Chinese state. I've become comfortable with the existence of chance and the existence of uncertainty in, in the world. So that we sort of were com- comfortable with the idea that these are natural features of the world. So what we have to then do is essentially devise uh, statistical tools to account for that randomness, to account for that chance. And, you know, historians of science have called this, you know, uh, the taming of chance, uh, becoming comfortable with chance. And that seems to be sort of the larger narrative that by the early 20th century, this was the case everywhere. So it's somewhat surprising then when you enter the 1950s, where you encounter uh, a real sort of strong response to that, not just a response, a strong criticism of that particular kind of consensus. I I don't want to say that this consensus was entirely unchallenged uh, either in in earlier decades, Uh, but uh, so there there were places where where you also saw uh, 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 people making making claims that probability is not the only way to think about counting. Uh, But it's in, in China in the 1950s, and actually they're getting this from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is also a major uh, factor in this. You see a very strong theoretical critique being mounted on the overt reliance on probability theory. And this stems in some ways from a definitional debate. You know, what is statistics? Is it a universal science? Is it a natural science? Is it a social science? And fundamental to, to these definitional distinctions really is what, what place and what role do chance and uncertainty play in the world? So what Soviet statisticians, what Chinese statisticians did, uh, the debates began in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, but they really are resolved in the, in the early 1950s, first in, in Moscow, and then, then of course, the influence in, the, in China is, is tremendous. And what they basically are doing is applying a fairly reductive teleological model of uh, history that they're getting from Marx. It's a, it's a reductive, it's a specific reading of teleological Marx's progressive history, which basically says that we know how the future is going to unfold. Uh, we know the stages through which human society has to has to sort of travel. Uh, so where's the uncertainty in this? Where's the chance in this, right? So what's much, much more important is to think about class analysis, is to think about the relations to production, all these other classical sort of Marxian uh, theoretical terms, but no uncertainty, no chance. But what that means is you end up with essentially methods that are essentially either exhaustive in nature. So you end up with the census method. The only way to count something is to go is to count it exhaustively, count every instance of whatever you need to count. Or you end up doing a certain kind of sampling that is not randomized. So it ends up being fundamentally qualitative ethnographic kinds of research. So it's a very different understanding of what the relationship between the natural world and the social world is, and the fact that the social world has a different set of laws where chance and probability really do not operate. And I, I love that the term for it is exhaustive analysis, because when I read about it, I, I feel exhausted thinking about literally 200,000 people out there trying to count everything. Um, Absolutely. But, but there was also this really interesting point in your book, and I wonder if this is this sort of fundamental to how statistics have gone in China, where a call was made, look, we want numbers quickly, you know, accuracy, eh, leave it by the by. Yeah, so this this became a real sort of, uh, things reached sort of a, a critical point by about 1956, 57. You have to essentially uh, count exhaustively. You build a system, as you just said, 200,000 people reporting from the county all the way up uh, the cooperatives and then eventually the communes by 1958 all the way up to Beijing. So here again, it's interesting. In, in certain parts of the economy, this works relatively well. So if, in, if you look at the industrial sector, a much smaller part of the economy in the 50s, 
it's easier to have a system of periodic reports, say biweekly, monthly, quarterly, six monthly, that can be filled in because you know an industry is fixed in space, it's localized, uh, and and it's easy, to, relatively easy to track. So it seems to work somewhat okay in in, in the industrial sector. But by the 1956, it's in the ag- agricultural sector that things sort of the wheels sort of really come off because given the scale of the country, given the diversity, the the, the regional uh, sort of the climatic diversity, the geographic diversity, uh, and and then, of course, the, the kinds of crops that are grown, it just became impossible to be able to implement this kind of very rigorous, periodic, exhaustive enumeration that this uh, this sort of system or, or model called for. So what you start seeing is, on the one hand, tremendous delays that come into the, the system. So then there the are complaints from uh, provincial leaders and, of course, eventually from leaders in Beijing at the Planning Commission, at the, at the Stats Bureau, uh, that we are not getting the data in time, right? And then people in, from, from below are basically saying, well, we can't supply this data in a timely fashion. And by the mid-50s, you have another sort of confounding issue, which is that in order to try and promote uh, statistics as a major element of nation building, of, of, of national construction, to, to use the translation of the Chinese term, there's some kinds of propaganda that's mounted that actually incentivizes the production of statistical tables. So you have tables that are being produced, but they're being produced without always enough attention to accuracy because you have this incentive to, 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 to supply them in a timely fashion. So by 56, 57, this tension becomes acute enough. You know, on the one hand, you have uh, you need data uh, you know, you need accurate data. On the other hand, you need data in a timely fashion. But these are these are really at 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 loggerheads to each other. So Shremu Chiao, who's the director of the Statistics Bureau in, in in the 50s, he basically comes out in 57 and says, you know what, this is a real problem. But in order to get the data on time, it's okay. You can carry out some degree of estimation. And as 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 I sort of argue, this in some ways, uh, you know, you can think of this as letting the cat out of the bag. And then it sort of leads to potentially much more estimation uh, being being a sort of central part of the system. It's a, it's a desperate attempt in some ways to resolve it. I'm curious to sort of bring this into the present day. Um, I mean, exhaustive enumeration, uh, you need it for things like census work. But beyond that, is it dead as a discipline or has the arrival of big data made it tempting, if you like, for Xi Jinping's government to return to the idea that they can count everything in the haystack rather than just a sample. So I, I think I th- it, it, in some ways that the, the dream of total enumeration is, I think I've called this, uh, I've labeled it such, uh, has returned. It's returned with a vengeance precisely because of what you've described, because of the, the, both the qualitative leaps technologically that we have, we have undergone in the past, say, 10, 15 years, but, but, but also which have, which have then led to quantitative leaps, right? So that whether it's data collection, uh, data storage, our ability to process that data. And that, I think, is, is bringing back these dreams in some ways that you saw in the 50s. Uh, there are some interesting differences. You see, you know, the the actors who are collecting the data, who are using the data, are not just states anymore. What is really distinctive now, of course, is the is the intermeshing of of private ends and and public concerns. I think one way to think about this is that we are always conditioned by the technological sort of possibilities of our time. So in the fifties, of course, we were conditioned by the new technologies that emerged, probability theory, mathematical statistics, and its applications, uh, allowing for all sorts of new imaginaries to be possible. Big data is doing that today. What's interesting and new about the big data moment is in some ways this tension between the way in which we have used data with a lot of big data and a lot of data science what we're seeing is that we are collecting data at such scale that we can actually predict without necessarily building causal models 
So we can develop uh, essentially algorithmic systems that are predict predictive without being inferential. If we cannot ascribe motive, then how do we judge the outcome? Of course, data scientists and a lot of corporations will tell you, we don't care. If we can predict consumer behavior, we can come up with the, the best kinds of products. And that's what we're interested in. And that'll generate profit. Similarly, you know, you can think of states and the kinds of outcomes that perhaps uh, leaders want to generate if they have confidence in a predictive model they don't really need to understand why something is happening and that is a real so it's a real sort of fundamental challenge because so much of the way in which we have designed a society is based on having a a theory of why something happens so the tension i think is that there's a return of this sort of the dream of total or, or exhaustive enumeration but with a very very new and very very i think interesting and in some ways troubling twist or a, or a sting sting at the at, at the end of the tale you know and that was Arunab Ghosh from Harvard. How interesting. Who knew that statistics could be so philosophical? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I've done stats myself and I just assumed surely there's only one way you can do statistics. Like it's a science, right? And, you know, it didn't even occur to me that um, you could treat it completely differently and just make it be what you wanted it to be. And, and that explains really Peter's um, question. How, how did, you know, how do these numbers come out so, so weirdly? It's because it's got nothing to do with statistics as we understand it. It's to do with what the party wants. Indeed it is. <laughs> and the final question we had was from another person who sent in a lot of amazing questions, John Famella, who wanted to know about tea. He asked, what are some of the favourite teas of Xi Jinping and other famous Chinese leaders? So who did you find to talk about this? I have to say, this was the hardest question to answer. I went um, to so many tea experts and they kept putting me on to other tea experts. So I, it was like a kind of email chain of China tea experts around the world. And finally, I got really lucky and I landed with Lawrence Zhang. He's an assistant professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. He's a historian who looks at the tea industry in 19th and 20th century East Asia and Taiwan. He also has this incredible blog called A Tea Addict's Journal. And, you know, anything you want to know about tea, he knows it. Before we even did the interview, he, he sent me a paper that he'd written and it was so fascinating. And actually, I found it quite shocking because his starting point was that the Chinese art of tea was actually something quite new that it only happened since 1976, and that actually it had its roots in Japan and Taiwan. <laughs> so I, I mean, we started there. I asked him, how did he come to this conclusion? Well, I, I think uh, I should caveat that by saying that I, I would argue that the Chinese art of TS is commonly witnessed at an average tea house in China today as practiced is inspired by Japan via Taiwan. Uh, I think the distinction there is that China has a long history of tea drinking. And there were lots of different kinds of traditions that date back to you know, the Song or even earlier. Uh, but what you now normally see as, quote unquote, the Chinese tea ceremony, as some people call it, is a relatively recent invention that was based on the southeastern practice of Kung Fu Ta from the Chaozhou and Fujian area, and then sort of repackaged by people in Taiwan during the 60s and 70s into what it is today. And, and they, they were very successful in 
repackaging it and then selling it to mainland China uh, during the reform and open era. Uh, I remember showing my grandfather uh, this kind of tea drinking. He's from you know Jiangsu province, and so we were green tea drinkers. And he was like, well, the, the cups are so small and the pots are so small. What do you what do you do with this? Like it's 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 bewilderment. But nobody thinks it's weird anymore. Ask anyone who is like thirty years or thirty years old or younger, and they think this is just the, Chinese, the Chinese way of drinking tea. So with, that transmission has been very quick. Yeah. But even I mean, even now we see Xi Jinping has been visiting tea farms, calling for the development of a tea industry. Why do you think Chinese leaders really felt the need to create a specifically Chinese form of tea art? I mean, your contention is that it's, it was a political act, yes. I think in Taiwan, in, in the context of especially the mid to late 70s, it made sense, right? Uh, it lost its seat in the UN. It in some ways lost the political legitimacy that it had been claiming all those decades prior. And so if politically you're no longer recognized, then you have to make a cultural argument, right? We are the real China, right? From the Kuomintang's perspective. And, and one way to do it among many is to say that we have preserved these ancient Chinese traditions. And you hear that sometimes from, from folks in Taiwan. I mean, you know, oh, we, we practice these things that, that were lost in the mainland, especially during the Cultural Revolution. And I think the, the way they packaged this tea art, as they call it, uh, was one way in which this was attempted. I think there's also an appeal to your average person, especially in, say, mainland China, of, because this is something you can practice, right? This is something you, you physically do yourself. It's not like wine where you just open a bottle and you drink it. Right? <laughs> tea, you, you have to get the tea leaves, you have to boil the water, you have to get your implements like your teapot and cups and stuff, and then you have to brew it yourself. And, and it's something that you yourself have to perform. So by performing this, maybe people feel more Chinese. Um, there's an interesting sort of performative aspect to this that I think uh, appeals to people. And, and there's a sort of connection with history and tradition that, that gets blown up uh, in, in the way it's promoted. But also, also, from a leadership perspective, the Communist Party did not want Taiwan to have a more developed tea culture than, than China itself. I don't know if it's as pointed as that. They have been in competition as you know, competitors in the world tea market since the late 19th century, uh, especially after Taiwan got given, uh, was given away to, to Japan uh, after the, the Sino-Japanese War. Um, and China's loss of leadership position in the world tea market was a pretty traumatic event because for centuries, foreigners have come to China looking for tea. And tea was the reason why, among, um, among others, but probably one of the most important commodities of export is because you know the British wanted to come to China to buy tea and, and that's how they started the Opium War and so on. But then the rapid loss of leadership position in the late 19th century uh, to South Asia was traumatic, uh, not just in an economic sense, but I think also psychologically it was, it was, it sort of represented how China had lost its way. So in some ways, rejuvenating and reinvigorating the tea industry maybe is a way to sort of reclaim that um, from that historical loss. 
So let's come to the actual question, which was from a listener called John Formella. And he asked, what are some of the favorite teas of Xi Jinping and other famous Chinese leaders? I mean, I think we know something about Chairman Mao's tea drinking habits, particularly from uh, the memoir of his doctor. Uh, But what do we know about leaders' favorite teas? There are these apocryphal stories. I personally have not come across a lot of stuff that's very reliable. The doctor's memoirs, the thing that sticks in my mind is Chairman Mao swilling his mouth out with green tea instead of brushing his teeth. Is that not true? Well, no, no, no. I'm saying, like, aside from that that kind of <laughs> personal observation, I, I think there's very little. It's not like they keep a record of, you know, what what <laughs> what the chairman drank today, right? We don't we don't know that. So, uh, and and the story about how uh, Chairman Mao gave Nixon some Dao Hong Pao, uh, as far as we can tell, the, there's no real record of the American side having received that. Yeah. Oh, much more likely he was given some green tea or something like that, uh, because green tea was, and in many ways still is, sort of the most prestigious, uh, the, the sort of highest class of tea. Um, even though other teas like poor have in recent years become more valuable, the cultural elite traditionally drank green tea. Well, we know that Xi Jinping gave Longjing tea to Obama. I mean, what can we read from that? That, that is what I would expect them to give, actually. Um, a refined green tea that is sort of maybe not quite special, but, but you know, defined by geographic origin uh, on, a, on a certain level. And so this is very Chinese, right? You can't find proper Longjing tea anywhere else. But for something like a gift to a foreign head of state, yeah, green tea makes perfect sense. And um, let's talk about those. That's one annual event, the two sessions, the parliamentary sessions, um, where tea really plays this kind of quite central role in the ritual. You know, we see all the leaders line, uh, sitting down and then people coming and serving them tea. And it was in the headlines that there was this change the tea drinking ceremony in, in the Xi Jinping era before women poured the tea to the main to everybody. Now the main leaders have their tea poured by men. Um, and Xi has uh, is the only person who gets his mug changed every time. Sometimes he even has two mugs. I mean, what, what should we read from that? I mean, I personally don't know. Uh, I'm not... Not someone who, uh, this is almost more obscure than criminology, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, trying, to, trying to figure out what's going on by reading number of mugs on the table. Uh, We're reading the tea leaves, reading the tea leaves, literally. You don't even know if there are tea leaves in there. <laughs> one could be a mug that has tea in it, and another one just be water. He just wants to be get hydrated without getting too caffeinated. She has his preferences, and it gets filled. It makes, makes, makes perfect sense, yeah. But to answer John's question, it's clear that Xi Jinping is thinking about tea, right? That he's the only person in the Great Hall of the People that gets special treatment in this way. Yeah, probably. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure his wishes get fulfilled in that sense. And he he spent a lot of time in Zhejiang, I think, uh, when as a provincial official. And, you know, it's a tea-producing region. Uh, I'm sure he's very familiar with lots of good tea. So it would make sense that he has, you know, more special preferences. 
And I actually read that when he was based in Ningda Prefecture, he made four specific visits to Tanyang Village, which is famous for this Tanyang Tonggo tea. And now he has apparently he's proposed to develop the tea industry with local characteristics by grading tea leaves and introducing large scale planting and scientific management. Are we going to see sort of leaps in the tea industry under Xi Jinping, do you think? That wouldn't be a bad thing, to be honest. Um, uh, he also recently visited the Wuyi Mountains, I think, uh, that region in, in Fujian, in northern Fujian, and also made some speeches uh, about uh, reforming or at least improving the tea industry scientifically. The, the Chinese tea industry has always been kind of troubled in, in the sense that it, it lacks a lot of uh, regulations that you might expect from other kinds of similar industries elsewhere. There's no real sort of appellation control. So you can just slap a name on something and there's very little repercussion for selling fake tea. Um, there's fake teas abound uh, or bad quality teas abound. Quality control is an issue. There, there are lots of small producers, which does make for a more diverse sort of marketplace, but conversely also causes quality control problems as small producers have trouble sometimes keeping up or try to find ways to sort of do things via shortcuts. So some kind of government policy that tries to maybe rein that in and regulate it a little more might be a good thing for everyone involved. Louisa, that is an absolutely fascinating interview. Um, although I can top Xi Jinping's two glasses of tea. Um, when the one time I actually was in the presence of a Chinese leader was when Jiang Zemin was at Tsinghua University and his teacup got changed three times and then he came out with his own mug. That probably had to do more with a fear of being poisoned than the tea. But I mean, after all this, do we know what Xi Jinping's favourite tea is? We do not. We actually have no idea. And um, that was actually interesting, you should say security, but that was one of the reasons that was cited for the switch in the gender of tea servers for the top leaders in, in the Great Hall of the People. So yeah, apparently that too, the type of leaf they're drinking uh, might also be confidential. So I guess the big question is, we promised a prize of Barbara Demick's book, Eating the Buddha, for the best question. I actually have two spare books. Who do you think they should go to? So does that mean we get to give away two books? We do. Oh, how generous. Well, look, how about I pick one and you pick one? Does that seem fair? Absolutely. Go for it. All right. I love the tea question um, because it's so simple and we have failed to answer it. So I think <laughs> it, it, it stands, stands unconquered. So I have to give a prize for that. And if anyone does know the answer, please write in and we'll find another another book to pass out. I have. Uh, can we can we promise them uh, immunity for revealing state secrets? I mean, that's uh, you know. I I have to say, I learned the most from the Hanfu question. I actually thought that I knew quite a lot about Hanfu. It turns out I knew nothing at all. So I guess let's give the. Um, the books to John Formella and Aaron Jia. But thank you, everybody, for your questions. Fantastic questions. And thank you to everybody who spent the time answering them as well. And thank you also to our, uh, yes, particularly to our guests uh, who this week were um, Tony Seish, uh, Antonia Fanane, Aranab Ghosh and Lawrence Jang. You've 
podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Background research by Julia Bergen and Xu Chong. Our music is by Sudi Wilkins, and cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.